Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Changing Reels. Uh, my name is Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. We're going to continue on our ongoing look at movies a bit off the beaten path, or movies that didn't quite get the respect or coverage that myself or Courtney thought they deserved, with a specific focus on diversity in front of and behind the camera. I think we've got a trio of excellent selections today. Before we start talking about those, Courtney, how you hanging in? Uh, you know what? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm a little tired. It's been a busy past few days. I was at the Toronto Black Film Festival for a good portion of this week, and it's a nice little festival. I think it's their fifth year, but when you've got a full day of work and then you're seeing like three films in the evening, it kind of wears you down after a while. Well, even if we're being generous on run times and assuming like an hour and a half, you know, that's four and a half, 7.45 hours, factor in some travel on top of that. Yeah, that's a solid double-digit day. Yeah, you're, you're getting home well past midnight and your alarm's going off at like five in the morning, or if my daughter's alarm goes off at like four or three whenever she decides to wake up, it starts to get to you. <laughs> but I have to, I can't complain. Like I mean, it's a nice little festival and I saw some really good eye-opening stuff. Sweet. Anything that we may have on deck, like a suggestion potentially for a future episode? There was a documentary I saw called By Blood, and it was about indigenous Americans in Oklahoma who are of African descent. So it talks about the times when, I guess, the Cherokee tribe and I'm forgetting the other four tribes that are situated around them in Oklahoma all owned slaves. I guess whites had introduced slave ownership to the indigenous community way back when slavery was still a thing. And once the Civil War was over and slavery was abolished, I guess it was written in the Constitution that these tribes had to accept the slaves as part of their community. It was that way for many years until, I guess, the rise in terms of casinos and gambling and financial assistance started to change. Then those people who were descendants of the slaves were either kicked out or had their traditional rights revoked. So it's all about these descendants who feel that they are Cherokee or one of the other tribes for all their life and are just, they just basically want the same rights and respects and to be partake in the same traditions. In some cases, they can vote, but they can't get the same social assistance that others do. And when you start looking at, for example, the Cherokee tribe, because you have had so much, I guess, diversity in terms of birth, and there's a good portion of the tribe that looks Caucasian, or is Caucasian and has like maybe one-eighth Indian blood in them, but that one-eighth supersedes the slave descendants who, in some cases, have more right to stake a claim. So it was a really interesting and eye-opening documentary, and it kind of shows both sides of the debate and the politics that are at play, and I thought that was really fascinating. So that might be one that we'll touch on this show whenever it gets released. Yeah, everything that you just said is kind of right up my alley in terms of exploring aspects of American history that go unexamined. And it, I feel just kind of floored for a second because we talk so much about the atrocities committed against Native Americans and then also, of course, to black slaves. But it makes a sad bit of sense that that would create an environment where whatever little scraps were left over for the Native Americans, they would inherit some of the same sins that we live with. And kind of shows how history never teaches things correctly. Because last year I read a book, Slavery by Another Name, 
that tracks actually the history of slavery pre-Civil War, you know, down to its foundations, and then what happened after the Civil War and during Reconstruction and Reconstructionists' attempts to keep slavery in practice by rewording peonage laws and basically giving law enforcement officers almost unlimited power to enforce white rule over the black citizens, even though they purportedly had the right to vote and so on. That didn't really cease until about 1945, just on the tail end of World War II. So it sounds like By Blood is kind of a necessary companion piece to peer a spotlight into those unsung or unexamined corners of American history. Definitely. And I mean, as someone pointed out, when you think of the atrocities that have happened to the indigenous community, you often think of them solely as the victims. But he says, but you know, in a lot of cases, the victims can be the aggressors and do wrongs as well, right? And it's just like, oh, because again, that's a part of history that even reading the synopsis, I was like, wait a minute, indigenous people of African descent, wait, what? That, that never happened. And then, because again, our, our history is so curated in such a way that we're told everything is specifically black and white and only specific incidents happen and then you start to realize that especially in terms of slavery and who owns slaves and what types of slaves that's like a whole vast pool that you could go into like every culture especially around that time and you'll be shocked in terms of like who was owning slaves sometimes within their own culture having the hierarchy and the slavery so it's, it's just a fascinating history that we have all right, well, I'll look forward to its release and definitely keep my eyes peeled on it. While we're on the subject of documentaries, both of our shorts today in different forms are documentaries. So, Courtney, your short's up on deck. What do you got for us? The short film that I picked is called Color of Beauty, and it's a Canadian short film directed by Elizabeth St. Philip. I stumbled across it when I was on the National Film Board of Canada website and i'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in film check out that site because you have past oscar winning and oscar nominated films and then the national film board of canada also just has like a wealth of films that they fund um, everything from like sarah Pauly's stories we tell amazing movie i think stories we tell is going to be in our future but yeah, that's an amazing movie. Yeah, definitely we have to discuss that one. And then they've just had like a wide, long history of helping to promote Canadian films. And actually, between February 19th and up to Oscar Sunday, which is February 26th, the National Film Board of Canada website is showing Oscar-nominated short film Blind Vasha for free. It's one of their short films that got nominated for an Oscar this year. It's fantastic. I saw it at the, the Toronto International Film Festival back in September, and you can go online and watch it completely for free. So that's another reason to go check out that website. But while I was perusing the site, and then I was trying to find films that speak to the Black experience within the entertainment world, and I stumbled across this film that talked about modeling and modeling in itself is its own form of entertainment but in an odd roundabout way the reason i actually chose this one is because earlier in the week i was reading a couple of stories about the show the bachelorette it's a show that both my wife and mother love they are also <laughs> bachelor disciples as well i guess this new upcoming season is the first time that they're having a black bachelorette so out of 34 i guess combined bachelor 
and bachelorettes. This is the first time they're having a black one and made a lot of press and it's talking point articles praising it, but then also saying why it took so long. And this short is all about a model who's 24. Her name is Renee Thompson and she's trying to make it into the New York scene and she's auditioning for New York Fashion Week. And as we're following her on her auditions, we're getting insight into the fashion world and why it's predominantly white models that you see and white models of a certain type. And one of the things that struck me when I was watching this film was when one person was explaining the process, it, it was basically black models are selected if they have white features. I think the exact quote was something like, if they look like a white woman dipped in chocolate. And that kind of stuck out to me because all the, the features that would inherently become with being a black person was considered not beautiful enough by their standards or, or too ethnic, right? So I thought this would be an interesting discussion point, especially when we're talking about films and stories that relate to black people within the entertainment world. Well, and I think that it's very much going to come into play when we talk uh, about Beyond the Lights a little later, especially with the way Gugu Mbatha Ra's skin is lit throughout um, Beyond the Lights. But we'll get to that here. I was amazed at the documentary partly because of how strong and interesting Renee Thompson is for this documentary. It's a short subject, so it's maybe 13 minutes long if we discount the credits, but she makes such an interesting impression on us in the audience in such a short span of time. Like when she's introduced, she holds herself with such confidence in music and her walk and her clock, like the energy that she brings to her words when she's talking about the bigotry of the fashion industry. That was just one facet of her. There's a part later on when they're interviewing her and talking about her frustration, and you can see it's it's almost borderline desperation in her eyes, but it's that kind of driven focus that shows how passionate she is, but you can still see kind of the hollowness there, the energy it requires for her to be in this industry to begin with, and then for her to be a black woman in this predominantly white world of almost identical looking models otherwise. But then we get an awesome glimpse of her too when she is showing up for a show and she has this scarf that she wears and this big hat and these sunglasses and she does like this Norma Desmond thing where she talks about her moments and basically embraces for a second the full star power of being a model. In the short span of time we get to see lots of different sides of the fashion industry, the inherent bigotry, what it does to those folks who aren't carbon copies of the last model, and then also the bit of power that it can grant. And it's that moment where she is Norma Desmond that I understood why she wanted so badly to be the queen of New York Fashion Week. One of the women involved, we get a brief snippet of conversation with her. I think there are like two cutaway moments. And... The way that she talks about the racism is telling because she doesn't want to address it directly. And she specifically says, I don't want to call it racist. That's sort of a dodge that you and I talked about. And you talked about it extensively last week and how people want to think that they're not racist, but they don't necessarily want to talk about race. You see that a lot throughout the short about how People are kind of sidestepping this subject. One of the things I thought was really cool 
in terms of smashing stereotypes on both corners is one of the photographers that he works with. He like he was searching for someone like her with her features, not someone that he sees on the runway all the time. And it sounded like he had a bit of a southern accent. So it's like almost combating stereotypes in multiple ways. You've got the man who has this accent trying to make it in this highfalutin New York world and cities, particularly like New York, they don't look too kindly on a lot of Southern folks here in the States, even though they have their own forms of bigotry that we see in The Color of Beauty. And then just Renee Thompson as a subject herself being so compelling and fun and at times sad but energized. It's just a great thing to challenge our perspective all around while still showing some folks, even if they are willing to acknowledge the racism, they may not be really willing to talk about it. Yeah, and you think of we're in a world now where they've had how many umpteen seasons of America's Next Top Model when Tyra Banks was, I guess, still running that. And you think that we've come so far in terms of inclusion, especially within the modern world. And then you start to see the stats and like how New York Fashion Week, you have 87% of the women are white, 6% are black, 6% are Asian, and then you get like 1 or 2% of other. And it's shocking. And the one moment where one of the guys is listing the criterias and he says a black model pretty much has to either have white features or be flawless that extra level of status that is needed just to make it in the door when you often used to hear that modeling was about finding someone who is unique is not the conventional beauty but yet what we're seeing on the runway is nothing but convention and i found that really intriguing well when you talk about uh, america's next top model and then the black women selected either because they can blend in with the rest or they're so uniquely themselves, you know, they're fantastic. It's interesting that fantastic tends to be also features more associated with white, like straight hair, a lighter complexion. And I wonder if maybe that diversity is part of the reason that something like RuPaul's Drag Race has gotten so popular because RuPaul tends to include a wide variety of queens And I know that we're dealing with a different set of subjects there, but at the same time, RuPaul's Drag Race is a bunch of queens competing for fashion contracts. It's not that different, at least in terms of its aims, financially speaking, than America's Next Top Model is. Because of RuPaul's Drag Race, I've been introduced to the magnificent Latrice Royale. And no matter what we see on each season, we're getting a nice, wide mix of queens in there. And it kind of makes me sad that we don't see more of that. Why can't the fantastic be big, curly hair? Or, you know, straight hair is fine as well. It's just, even in the little background details, and then the models that they consider flawless or fantastic about how even then they're subject to an inherently white standard of beauty. And it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently. Um, Not just terms of like what's going on in America and Canada with politics and race, but just in terms of the entertainment world. And I'd written a piece 
few weeks ago about Oscar not white and how it was looking like you were going to get a more diverse crop of nominees. I think people are a little too eager to say that the whole Oscar not white phenomenon is officially put to bed because part of the issue wasn't specifically about black people not being nominated. It was just the fact of like diversity in general. When you look at the film industry right now, the Asians are still very much underrepresented. Latino Americans are underrepresented. I find that you get the one nugget, for example, example, like this year, oh, it's diversity, and everyone assumes everything is back to normal. We can go back to the status quo. And even in this film, Renee, I think, was talking about, I think it was Vogue Italy, Vogue magazine, where they had an all-black model issue. And it sold out in the UK and the States, and it was a huge thing for once Vogue was just doing an issue with completely black models, and what a big thing. And then everyone acted as, all right, the problem is now resolved. And when we talk about diversity, it's not, in this context, we're talking about a black and white issue, but diversity in general is breaking up the status quo. And I think that too often we get the one black bachelorette, and then we think, all right, all is right with the world, right? And we can go back to what it was, so. And I mean, in your short, which we'll get to, but they make reference to Obama, and whether or not we will ever see a black president again. And I've heard that a lot, kind of, well, you had one, that's enough for diversity. It's like, well, no, we still need women to get ahead further. We There's a whole bunch of other races that need to come up as well, right? Like, diversity is just not a one-stop. Yeah, and especially with the Oscars, so white controversy. I mean, it was also about just making sure that the Academy itself was growing more diverse. And the only real growth that I can see for the Oscar nominations this year is in Best Supporting Actress. All props to the women who got nominated there. I adore Octavia Spencer, and I think Viola Davis is the best actress living. End of discussion. Even then, they're all crammed in supporting. Really? There wasn't any other black movies that came out, or as you said, any other Native American movies? Like, <laughs> I guess, did any of them watch By Blood? To bring up the movie that you mentioned previously, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. I, it's something that we're going to need to be vigilant on. So if we use our Oscars as cultural touchstones, and they need to be as diverse as the culture that they're supposedly reflecting. I, have, I want to jump off on that point, but I'll wait till we get to your film. So if you don't mind, we, let's dive into your short. I thought it was kind of cool. We both selected documentaries this week. And yours is more overtly a documentary, obviously with its presentation and subject matter, but, you know, still a great flick in its own right. This one, very recent, and it caught my eye because it involved one of my favorite actors working right now, Michael K. Williams. Basically, The Atlantic in a recent interview section, they were asking him if he was typecast. Michael K. Williams took this in a very interesting direction. And instead of exploring that in a one-person monologue or just giving a story or giving his direct political or cultural views or anything like that, he segments himself and essentially creates an experimental short documentary about his experiences as an actor, as a black man living in America, black citizen living in America... <laughs> as a black dude who just wants to get by, and how those personalities, those different aspects of him, clash and result in creating these characters. Because for me, the most fascinating part of Am I Typecast was the part where Michael K. Williams, channeling Omar, was talking about how this is what's expected of you. Did you ever really change? And it was kind of the more 
sensitive aspects of Michael K. Williams that were responding, kind of like the, the superego, if you will, to the Omar-esque id. One of the things that was really cool about that exchange is that it highlights tremendous strain performers are on to begin with to become these characters and separate themselves so fully into those roles. And the use of Omar there, when I think of Omar, I don't think of the shotgun-toting, whistling, Omar-coming guy. I think of the man who was driven to get revenge for his lover. That's what I think of when I think of Wire. I think of that moment where he says he was beautiful. And it's interesting because here in the short, you don't really get that glimpse of Omar's side, his sensitive, loving side in this snapshot, but that's because people typically think of Omar in that way. They think of him in that shotgun-toting, whistling badass way. And it's the sensitive sides of that character, not as that character, that have to remind that character, and in turn Michael K. Williams himself, convincing himself outside this character, but also in character, that there was more to him than being someone typecast as this badass shotgun-toting guy. That the sensitive aspects that led into his performance as Omar are still there and what keep him from being typecast, even if he's aware of the kind of roles that he's taking. I wish more interview subjects would take an opportunity like this to really explore the space, because Michael K. Williams, this is so special and weird. For something that's only about two and a half minutes long, there's a lot packed in. This is a wonderful short, and it touches on so many issues. Like, for example, there's a moment where he's talking to Omar and he's saying that I'm not a gangster, right? Knowing full well that that's how the majority of people will see him because of he made that role so famous. But it also reminded me of watching, like, inside the actor's studio and just hearing other actors of color talk, whether it be black or Hispanic, and hearing them say about how they were being always being offered the gangster role. And... I think I mentioned this when we were talking about in our first episode with Better Luck Tomorrow. When I saw that film at TIFF, the entire cast I mean, the Q&A were saying that pretty much how they knew each other well before filming because they had seen each other at all the same auditions for the Asian delivery person. They were all competing for those same parts. And I like here that Williams is acknowledging, yes, there are people that follow that, but he broke that mold. He got out of that ghetto, even though they're questioning, did you choose this or did it choose you? And it's a really fascinating short. And I love the metaphor that they were debating about the cat hanging out with the poodles. And if the cat, if the <laughs> yeah. cat believes yeah. it's a poodle, you know, and it convinces the others that it's a poodle, then is it, a, is it a really a poodle or is it still a cat? And it, my mind starts to drift to the O.J. Simpson documentary, O.J. Made in America, because in many ways, O.J. was that cat who thought he was a poodle until things hit the fan and he realized, nope, he's still a cat in the poodle's eyes. So it was, I don't know, this film was really well done. And again, I like Michael K. Williams. Similar to you, I don't see Omar as the bad gangster that you have to fear. Like, every time I see him, it brings a smile to my face because he yeah. can do so much. Like, I, I think of him in um, the Todd Solon's film uh, sorry not Palindromes um, wartime like happiness in wartime yes or? yes um, when he was when they were redoing the characters from happiness but with different actors it's, life during war 
wartime. Yeah, life during wartime. That's it. And yeah. his work in that was so good. He's just a really talented actor. But how long did it take him to get to this level? And the fact that it did take playing a gangster to get people to take notice, you know, it does speak volumes. Yeah, and I like that he allows himself this space to even have a little fun. Because one of the things I've been seeing on, on Twitter recently is just a celebration of black love and black happiness. And honestly, when I see Michael K. Williams in his denim sleep pants and the hoodie being kind of like the chill side of himself just snacking away on some cereal, it shows that he is willing to have fun with himself also, but still how seriously he takes this. Because he's a talented comedic actor on top of all this. He was in limited series, The Spoils Before Dying, where he was kind of making fun of that whole gangster with a past thing by being this jazz musician who gets embroiled in a ridiculously complex murder mystery, kind of, maybe. He has fun with himself in that. It's shows that he knows where his image came from that other people mostly see him as. But it's because of his talent and his willingness to be sensitive to these roles, but most specifically his skill at being sensitive to these roles, but also that sense of humor that keeps him away from Omar. And that's why I like that the final shot of this is basically them all collapsing back into himself. He's not fragmented anymore. He doesn't have the worried side, the hardcore side, and then the laid-back side of him. He realizes, in the context of this interview mental space, these are all aspects of him. You know, these are all things that he's got to make peace with. So while there is an element that is considered typecasting, there are all these other things that feed into just the beauty that is Michael K. Williams. So it made me happy. I mean, there were a lot of sad aspects to it when I consider typecasting and obviously some of the stuff that Michael K. Williams is talking about there, but his strength and just his talent in playing these different versions of himself, which are in turn partly characters, but there's just enough a difference that we can see where the character ends and Michael K. Williams began that it's just such a tremendous little thing. Well, one thing I wanted to just jump back to the previous show that we were talking about. There's a line in this film where he questions, could a white person play Omar? And then Omar says, well, man, you could never play president. And he turns and looks at him and he says, no, I could play president. And to get back to something that you had said when we were talking about the Oscar discussion earlier, when you were saying, like, you know, wasn't there any other black films or indigenous films that they could have looked at to get nominated? And I think even typecasting it that way by saying, well, isn't there any other black films? Like, I think... One of the yeah. problems with the whole Oscar so white and just the entertainment industry, because really it's not, the Oscars isn't the problem. It's really the studio levels and the casting agents and the writing. That's where the big issue is. And I took a lot of flack for this when I was putting in my article, but what I was trying to say is if you look at something like La La Land, as fun as it is, as dazzling as it is, you could have easily changed the leads from two white leads to a white lead and a Hispanic lead or a white Asian, black Asian. Like you could have done any type of combination, right? And we need to try and get to a point or at least convince the studios to get to a point where you could have a guy like Michael K. Williams play the president and it not be a thing, right? It wouldn't necessarily be a black movie or whatever movie. It's just a movie where you have a diverse cast and it's not even an issue. It's just kind of daily life. And I think that's where I think a lot of people get 
caught up with the Oscar so white debate where they say, oh, well, there wasn't enough black films that were worthy. It's like, no, no, it's not about having all black films, all Asian films, all white films. It's having films where you could go in, obviously for the appropriate context, and just see a diverse cast and not even question it, just be as is, you know? But we're not at that point yet. No, I agree with you. And I think that question from... Michael K. Williams as Omar, you think a white guy could have played Omar? Honestly, like, I think the answer is yes. It would have been a completely different show. I don't think it would have been nearly as comedic. But someone like Ben Foster, who has played these kind of ruthless types before, there is an example, and it goes back to what you were saying. Diversity isn't just, could a white guy do this? Could a black guy do this? It's about reflecting our mosaic of experiences. And while we need to acknowledge, you know, primarily the history of oppression of black Americans here, I mean, when it comes to our entertainment, we have that leeway, that space to go into different areas and cast people in different roles and just see where their history takes us. Not where we want to guide the story exactly, but just throw them in there, see what they have to say, and see where their history will shape the story instead of keeping it on this binary level. Very well said. All right, well, I think that'll do it for our two shorts here today. As always, we'll be including links on where you can watch those at the Modern Superior website, so please make sure you give us a click there. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Beyond the Lights. Welcome back, everyone. Today on our docket, we've got the amazing movie, Beyond the Lights. It was released in 2014, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, also written by her, starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Minnie Driver, Nate Parker, Danny Glover, and Machine Gun Kelly. It is an amazingly complex romance centering around pop star Noni Jean, who Gugu Mbatha-Raw plays, who's managed by her mother, Macy Jean basically chronicling her extremely humble beginnings at talent competitions before segueing into her success as a pop star, uh, not unlike Rihanna today, and the troubles that she has basically maintaining her sense of self in this world of pop. Beyond the Lights, I think, was one of the movies that Courtney and myself agreed to talk about when we made a, an initial list for Changing Reels. It was one of my top picks for 2014. I thought it was one of the best movies released that year. And Courtney, I have to tell you, I was kind of dreading watching this again because I was worried it would have lost some of that power. But two minutes in, the goosebumps, they're still there. And I was in awe of all of this. So why did you want to pick it? It's a film that I adored when I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, I guess back in September of 2014, and when I selected the film, I was really expecting just kind of a light, fluffy romance. I figured my wife and I were going to be seeing two films at TIFF that particular day, and I figured, oh, you know, it might be a romance that 
my wife enjoys because, you know, she likes to watch a lot of those cheesy Lifetime movies. And I know from seeing Love and Basketball, which is a fantastic film, and The Secret Life of Bees, which I was so-so on, this wasn't going to be one of those cheesy Lifetime movies, but I figured it would be a, a nice, easygoing romance. And I like that you used the word complex because that was one thing I was not anticipating once this film started. And I was just taken by how wonderful the love story is but also the messages that are in this film. Like, this film says a lot without beating the audience over the head. And it was just such a rapturous experience. And it's one of those films that I've been meaning to revisit. And unlike you, I did not have any qualms about revisiting. I just, I wanted a nice, fun, light film that still had some good substance to it. Another reason I chose it, partly because of the conversation that we just had, is I originally thought, well, if we're going to do Black History Month, maybe pick a film that speaks to the historical Black experience and what have you. And then I started thinking, no, you know what? We need to also promote films that could be done by any type of actor. And this is one of the things I love about this film is it works because the performances and everything feel true and honest. And again, you could substitute anyone in these roles. Again, I don't know if you get the exact same note perfectness that you get from these actors, but this is a film that has universal appeal. And I feel that if this film had done better and more people had seen it, we would probably see even more films with more diverse casting. Well, it also speaks to the bias against movies of this type. And I, and when I say movies of this type, I mean just movies centering around music or pop in general, because it's treated like such a joke. Last year, Andy Samberg had his latest comedic flick, Pop Star. The only other movie I could think of that even really approaches Beyond the Lights in its substance is something like Britney Spears' Crossroads, which... I actually kind of admire it for trying to take a sort of mature, complex stance, but it blows up in the actual execution. And Beyond the Lights it is so assured. Step one on. When I wrote my initial review for this at Can't Stop the Movies, the smash cut that happens from the beginning of the movie when Noni is being told to throw away her runner-up trophy because it's not worth anything. This girl with these glasses and this smile and this beautiful curly hair to this woman who is essentially chained up, like she's chained up literally in dress, She's in bondage gear, leather, with chain links. When she shows up at the award show later on in the movie, she is wearing a top of chains. The costuming on this is on point. Like, it's just amazing. But that smash cut between that little girl and the woman that she became broke my heart. And it certainly did not help the shattered heart that the little girl was singing Nina Simone's Blackbird, because Nina Simone got me through college. Sea Line Woman is, depending on the day, probably in my top three songs ever written. And I know that Nina Simone's was kind of specific performance of it, but just the way that she drags out those beats and lets her voice soar and drop, this little girl had it. She had it. She had that emotional power that could translate into truly amazing pop. We undersell pop as a true emotional source. That's one of the reasons it's called pop. It's popular. It appeals to people. There's something there. But the mix of this woman in chains, seeing these songs about being 
essentially dominated compared to that beautiful girl who was so happy to be singing and could inspire people to see her. It it was hard for me to go on the first time I watched it because it just it hurt. And I'm glad that we have so much more of the movie to talk about, but that smash cut shows how much confidence Gina Prince-Bythewood had both in the performances and the editing in this case from uh, Terrilyn A. Shropshire, who just did a fantastic job making sure that those emotional beats in this land and land and land and they never disrupt the flow and they're all just perfect. One of the things that stuck out to me when I first saw the film, and I guess it was maybe a few weeks just after Nicki Minaj had dropped her Anaconda video, which was a very controversial video because it was pretty much Nicki Minaj and a bunch of scantily clad women shaking their derriere every which way to a Sir Mix-a-Lot remix. And there was a lot of think pieces written on that and discussions about the justification of women and whatnot. And I remember when the cast and the director were at the festival and they were doing the Q&A and they were talking about the way how women are perceived in the media. And she wanted to create a film that addressed that, but also showed the human behind the image and that really stuck with me and even again watching this film noni she's got her cry for help moment early on but i love that she is such a well-rounded character the conflict between her and her mother feels honest she's playing the game that's expected of her even hanging out with machine gun kelly's kid culprit and i guess they're having their quasi affair just because they know image sells like this whole thing is selling the fantasy and she's trying to sell the fantasy but after a while the real person needs to come through and we're so obsessed with the fantasy building it up and tearing it down that we constantly objectify women in in the media on a daily basis and it's gotten to the point where i would say even women are objectifying other women really harshly now especially now that you have social media as rampant as it is there's been very few films that have touched on this particular subject matter and in such an honest way i think part of the honesty there has to do with gina prince bywood's script and then the way that Mini Driver and Gugu Mbatha Raw embody different kinds of code switching throughout the movie. I know that we've kind of talked in this same podcast about how, you know, different actresses or different performers could step into these roles and probably do a good job with them. I don't think that you have a movie without Gugu Mbatha Raw and Mini Driver specifically. Because Mini Driver has this complex role where she has mothered this child. She is ostracized from both sides of her family. Her presumably white mother wants nothing to do with her or the kid. And then uh, Noni's father didn't want anything to do with them either. So even though much of what Macy Jean, Minnie Driver's character, does is heartless, there's enough sympathy in the backstory and in the way we watch Mini Driver's performance shift those gears so suddenly when uh, she has to change how she talks or how she presents herself. Like, we get a great example of that at the end when she's helping renegotiate Noni's contract. It's one of those moments where you can see her giving the opposition just enough rope to hang themselves. And then in even that moment where the white executive has to basically castrate himself 
in front of the black label head is complex too because it was another example of basically someone white in the industry assuming that they knew better than their black boss. That's basically what's happening with Macy Jean and Noni. So while we have that sympathy because of what happened with Macy Jean and kind of pain that she went through growing up, we get the full effect this has on Noni. There's no surprise that she ended up so depressed and isolated and basically feeling like there is nothing to her even at her best when she could have been proud of herself her mom because of her own tragedy was revisiting that pain on her daughter which just amplified as the years went on and noni became this big success so as noni became this big success we get to see Boo and batha raw just put on a freaking clinic of switching her body language, her facial language, her speaking tone in so many different scenarios. One of my favorite moments is when she is exiting the building. There's the crowd waiting before them and Machine Gun Kelly's uh, character Kid Culprit goes on ahead of her and he's just playing to the crowd the entire time. He's taking this all in. And the camera cuts back to Noni and Google and Bothwell just shifts her body language ever so slightly so that she can do kind of like an award show gait. So we see how tired she is, but then this energy that she gets to put herself back out there and be this version that other people want to see. And we also get to see that in a club later on where the DJ announces that Noni's in the house and she basically puts on a show for a bunch of strangers kind of doing this little lap dance thing and um, holding the alcohol bottles around like it's time for a big old party. Again, just playing this role. So that's also why, going back to the script, it's so painful when she's asking Kaz, who's played by Nate Parker, and there are some layers to his performance we're definitely going to have to talk about. But when she's just asking, can she be seen? Because she's been seen as these so many things that she's barely been able to be herself and Mbatha Ra's performance I still think that she was robbed out of so many nominations because people don't respect pop and they don't go out to see predominantly black romances like this. We talked about this with Love Jones. This is just a, a slightly more successful and I do think better made movie than Love Jones but it's still undersold like Love Jones. I think this one only got nominated for, I think it was the best original song, but yeah, she should have definitely been even like in the consideration for lead actress. One thing to get back to the body language. In all those scenes where she's code switching and she's putting on the show and doing the lap dance and what have you and make, make trying to seem larger than life, I love the way how the film always reminds you that even when she thinks she's larger than life or putting on the, the appearance of being larger than life, it is still within the confines of others and especially, specifically the male gaze, right? Like when she's doing that lap dance scene, it felt very eerie watching her do that, right? Because I think it was a stranger. I can't remember if he was related to the record industry or not, but the fact that she felt she had to do that just to show how bad she is and live up that persona. And then you've got the scene that always sticks in my mind is when she's performing, I believe it was at the BET Awards with Kid Culprit. And Kid Culprit has uh, that moment where the male ego steps in and he wants to show up Kaz. And he basically tries to rape her. Yeah, he, he does. Short of ripping off all her clothes, he, but he does 
raper because you do get that part where he rips off the jacket which she made the choice not to expose herself and he throws her on the bed violently rips off her clothes and you're seeing this rape play out and her mother's just there as if nothing happens like at the end of that scene the mother blames Kaz for ruining the show whereas you're thinking no this speaks volumes to the environment she's in the environment that the music industry especially does for women my sister-in-law is a teacher and she taught upcoming pop star now alessia cara who's been on snl and couple of the award shows and it's funny when you hear and even my wife talk about Alessia Cara they're always like well you know she's still a good girl she she still has her, she still performs with all her clothes on and whatnot because it's almost that expectation that when you make it into the pop world and you're a female be it Katy Perry Beyonce whatever you're gonna have to sell sex before people take you as a legitimate artist like the one thing you always hear about Gaga now is people are like oh she can sing like you know they're, they're so used to the <laughs> seeing her half naked or what outlandish thing is she gonna do next wearing Kermit the Frog yeah exactly when you forget no she's she's actually talented <laughs> she has musical abilities right like it's sad that we've come to that state where regardless of the genre if you are or the type of music, I should say, if you're doing rap or R&B or just straight pop, once you get into that mainstream popular context and you're a female, that is what is expected of you. And when we talked about Noni performing to show how bad she is, that section and your comparison kind of with Nicki Minaj there made me think of a talk that Bell Hooks gave. I think it was called Whose Booty Is This? And this seems to answer the question, whose movie is this? Like, the movie itself in those moments says that this is very much a male gaze, I own this environment for her. But staying detached enough so that we can see those changes in body language to see the toll that it's taking on Noni as she goes on. And I I highly recommend folks uh, look for Bell Hooks' talk. I will try and include a link to that in our notes because... All things Bell Hooks are amazing, but that, to me, is a very relevant talk for this movie. Then, in terms of that male gaze, one of the best things about this, about how Beyond the Lights is so consumed with Noni's point of view, her depression, and then her happiness. Because the lowest point, easily, is when Kid Culprit assaults her on stage, basically rapes her of her pride and her choice. Like It was her choice, as you said, to stay clothed. But then we get this extended vacation sequence that is magical. Part of the reason it's so amazing is that it's almost entirely concerned with her pleasure, with the way that she looks at the world and what she wants. There are so many beautiful little moments there. We get the joy of her snacking on proper breakfast food. Then there's that Oh, that lovely moment when she finally sheds herself of the hair that she's stuck with, this purplish-blue weave that she has so that she can let her curls free. In a typical romance, that might be the part where the male comes in, says, you look gorgeous, and kisses her passionately. But she hesitates. We, We see that she's exposing herself, that she's now comfortable enough around Kaz to let down that guard. And it was so, so great that they decided Kaz goes over and just smells her hair. This tactile embrace showing this is your beauty. This is me accepting your beauty. That even shows in the sex scenes when they are making love in 
their little bungalow hidden away. It's concerned with Noni's pleasure. Not since Magic Mike XXL have I seen a camera paralyzed in rapturous joy at the sight of Nate Parker's barely clothed body. There's this great silhouette shot when uh, Kaz approaches Noni and she's laying down and she's kind of again loving to let her guard down. He's just framed in silhouette on the background and <laughs> he's framed in such a way that you can see the dimples on his abs and I was just watching it, and I was like, oh boy, this is hot. It's all about Noni's pleasure. And, but those painful sequences and the depressing sequences, it's Noni's pain. It's Noni's depression that's feeding into the story. And then the whole reason that interlude is so magical is that it just lets her be her, and the movie frames itself visually in terms of soundtrack, like her finally getting to sing on her own, all about her pleasure and no one else's. That's one thing I loved about that whole Mexico sequence, like, especially after she sheds the, the fake hair, and I think just before they went to the karaoke bar, and she gets stopped by someone asking if they can take a picture, and she naturally I assumes yeah. she naturally assumes it's, oh, alright, another fan, and they hand her the camera, and it's just a family want to take a picture of them. It's that kind of, you are invisible to the world because you're now your true self and no one has been able to see your true self and I thought that was, you know it's it's a it's played for last but it's such a subtle and powerful moment and I agree with you the sequence in Mexico is actually my favorite part of the film because that's when you really get to know who Noni is you get to see Kaz do some horrible karaoke singing the romance in that sequence is, is fantastic and it's a nice contrast to everything else that we've seen. Prince Brightwood did a fantastic job of keeping Noni as the central figure, because even as you've got the subplot with Kaz and his political leanings, everything is always in context to Noni. You don't think of it as being, well, he comes in as the knight in shining armor that takes her away. Like Everything is her choice. She still has to make the decision whether or not she's going to go back, continue with the record recording. She really controls a good portion of the film. Well, it's even played for humor, too. Like, I, I was kind of surprised at the beginning when you, you said you wanted something kind of light, because I don't really see Beyond the Lights as something light, but there are those moments where Noni gets control and it's funny. Like, the way that Kaz loses his flying virginity, essentially, that's a lot of trust in a relationship. He lets himself be blinded and has the beats by Dre his ears and such, and how much fun that she's having, actually having something that she can control in her life for once. The only reason that that relationship is so fulfilling, he respects what she wants. So he is willing to be honest with her, but also give of himself what she needs in order for them to have their ultimate happily ever after, which, dude, how rare is it that a movie ends with the guy giving up his professional aspirations so that he can become a supportive man in a woman's professional life. Like, how often does that ever happen? Yeah, I really like that touch to it, because that's something, especially in film, you rarely see. 
even in Love Jones, as smart and amazing as that romance was, it still doesn't really end. And I realize it's partly intentional. We talked about that with the ambiguity at the end of Love Jones. But it still really doesn't end with that kind of give and take that results in the man realizing that he needs to be supportive of the wife and her professional aspirations. It's also a really great go-home happy point. We've seen Noni and all of her struggles and everything that's happened to her, both good and bad, in front of the cameras, behind the cameras, beyond the lights and so on, what's going on behind the scenes. She gets to perform her song in front of an appreciative audience with someone who loves her there, ready to support her thick and thin. And that just speaks to the strong through line of Gina Prince Bythewood's script, because Noni always had that power in her. We have that quick scene at the beginning when she needs to get her hair done up for the talent competition, and because she's singing Nina Simone, the hairdresser makes time for her. And also, I love the hairdresser's reading of Nina Simone? Noni had that power to draw her in. She always had the power to draw people in being herself, but because she was a black girl trying to make it in music, she had to basically lighten herself up. She had to become this subservient pop sex slave. That's also where the lighting is really interesting, because in that whole Mexico scene, we actually get to see the darkness of her skin and her hair, when previously in the music videos and on stage, she's lit in such a way that makes her skin lighter than it was and she lets herself be free. It's like she lets herself be that little girl again. I want to get your thoughts on the males in this film, because you have Kaz, who's got political aspirations. His father, played by Danny Glover, who is more old school. You've got Kid Culprit, who's you know clearly the bad guy. But then you also had the story about the spousal abuse, the couple that Kaz encounters twice the harshness of his reality but I, I want to get your thoughts on the inclusion of that into this film in lesser hands that could have been an unnecessary diversion but i thought the spousal abuse section was kind of interesting because in many ways it, it parallels the metaphorical abuse that noni has been going through for most of her life from the males within the music industry you know she's been un unable to, to break free of this vicious cycle and for me, the scenes of the domestic abuse, they show how Kaz is, first and foremost, he's a good cop. He understands that this isn't going to go down exactly how he wishes it's going to go down. He stays realistic. He gives her options. It also shows in that moment just how that cycle of abuse is able to perpetuate itself in the hands of these men. The other thing about that domestic violence, I guess, little subplot that's going on, is that recently here in the States, there was a woman deported by our immigration department who was being abused by her boyfriend and was trying to seek shelter, but because she was undocumented and because this was an abusive boyfriend we were talking about, he reported her and now she has to leave the country. Our system is just built to give abusive men all this power. And given that context, it's a powerful enough scene on its own, but it also shows how Beyond the Lights is built on a strong understanding of how our systems, large and small, be it law enforcement or pop, is built to kind of cultivate these toxic male powers 
that express themselves by dominating women, either, you know, with Kid Culprit and Noni on stage or with the abuser and his wife. I definitely agree with that. And it's interesting because when you think of the music industry, and I know a lot of people say that rap music basically just objectifies women, especially with the videos, but I was watching a documentary recently, and I think they were talking about music of the 80s, 70s, 80s, no, 80s, because they were talking about uh, music video culture. But when you think back to like rock music, especially in the 80s and the hair bands and stuff, the objectification of women and music has been going on for, for a long time, especially in the music video format that we know now. Definitely from the 80s onward but if you were to go back even with how you look at the rockets and whatnot like there's there's been a long history it just seems like now rap music has been the scapegoat for many you can look at several genres but especially rock and roll and rap that it's been occurring for a while and you get very few films that actually speak truthfully to that objectification well and that also brings up another aspect of power and perception that we need to talk about, I think, and that actually has to do with Nate Parker. I adored him in this movie. He played such a sympathetic, understanding, powerful, responsible person. And when there's that moment on the balcony and he says, I see you, it speaks to how he as an actor was able to completely understand depression to get his own desperation and, and try and give this woman something to live for. Considering what's come to light about Nate Parker since, I don't know if you read that some of the exchanges between him and then the girl he was accused of raping in college. And this is weird, I guess, to ask, but do you think that if it's possible for someone to acquit themselves or to just try and make peace with it or anything, I personally don't think that's possible. But I think part of Nate Parker's performance, part of the reason it's so affecting, is that he has seen this depression before, and what came to light about him shows that he has had first-hand experience. So I know it's a lot to get into there, but I think that's something that we need to talk about. Oh, you're just gonna you're just gonna take it to the deep end. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think a person can watch this film and see him as Kaz without having to look at what has come to light recently. And and I got into a lot of d- debates about this at TIFF this past September because Birth of a Nation was screening there. So it was the talk of pretty much every festival line, regardless of what movie you were seeing. There was a lot of opinions on that. But I think we as a society, but especially Hollywood in general, likes to pick and choose who it is guilty and who are, I guess, deemed to be exiled and who serve their time in terms of punishment and then who get reinstated into the club and the one thing that bothered me about the nate parker discussion this is not in terms of the act itself this is just more the reaction to what came out was parker was the talk of the town back in january when sundance was occurring he was supposed to be the person to end the whole oscar so white phenomenon because birth of a nation was so well received at sundance but when the allegations came to light or I should say when people finally took notice of the allegations that had been public record for many years it was almost as if because he was the quote-unquote the new kid on the block without the experience or the resume the clout that he got treated far worse than let's say polanski or i was gonna say casey affleck but even casey affleck as bad as that was it was still allegations right like parker 
was acquitted, but pretty much if you read up on everything, it does sound like he was guilty, but that's not for me to say. But I look at something like Polanski, where that is another incident where a person is clearly guilty, but he ran away from facing this, and then still went on to win an Oscar. When he has a new film out, there's still a large section of the film industry and cinephiles that will run out and see a film, whereas Parker was immediately vilified to death. I do think you can separate the artists from the art, and in this case in particular, like I would hate for people not to see this film just because Nate Parker's in it. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that at all. I think that I guess what's happened for me watching this in light of everything we now know about Nate Parker and that poor woman, I don't believe that it's entirely possible to separate the artist from the art. But considering what we know about Nate Parker and what we've now read and kind of seen there, could we see his role in Beyond the Lights and especially his performance, which is amazing, as a sort of attempted act of redemption? I would say no, because I think that's reading far too much into it. Um, okay. I would, I would argue if you want to look at it that way, you would have to go to Birth of a Nation because Birth of a Nation, the crux of it revolves around the character he plays, the wife gets raped and that's right. what starts the rebellion. And even that, knowing what he has encountered in his past, that is very, tough to watch so if anything i would say that is more of a film where if you're going to look for him trying to redeem himself to make amends birth of an agent is the one to go for because this film is so much noni's story it's so much about empowering female and breaking the systems that try to oppress females i wouldn't read this for parker in this um, particular film and that's why i think you could still watch it even though knowing what's happened in real life and still get caught up in the story and still buy into Kaz. And again, I say, the reason I say we, we tend to pick and choose the thing is because there's a lot of people in Hollywood who we just don't know about their lives or we tend to kind of ignore indiscretions. Like people love Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe had that whole incident with the underage girl, whether or not he claims that he didn't know or what have you. Like, you know, there's there's been so many actors throughout history that have done horrible things, politicians especially, who have done numerous horrible things, and the public turns around and forgives, right? We, we tend to pick and choose. Some people are upset that Mel Gibson is nominated for an Oscar this year, and others think, well, he served his time. So we're very finicky about how we decide. Like Cosby is another perfect example where the allegations for Cosby were nothing new. You know, these things were around since like the 90s. I want to talk about it, but that's a whole other element. I know. It's another It's another episode. And again, I, and just to be clear, I'm not condoning any of these actions. I'm talking more about yeah. how how complicated our, Plus, our reaction is. Mario Van Peebles is badass at some point. So that may be something we'd have to return to with that instead of with this. But Yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's another good film that touts on like several complicated oh, issues so, from yeah. his father's past. And his, like, yeah, it, again, you can't watch a film now with Nate Parker and not have these type of discussions. I think it's just in terms of the context. Like I feel and I fear that too many people are going to see Nate Parker on the cover of this and, and stay away and completely miss the point of this film and how great this film is. That is an awful lot of homework you'd be asking on people to be conscientious consumers, I guess, of what exactly it is that they're buying. But 
That's probably another whole conversation we can get into about the depersonalization of late period capitalism that maybe I need to go on an economics podcast or something <laughs> for. But I guess to end on one other note of positivity, when we talked earlier about how embracing diversity in movies isn't just a binary thing, it's not just we've got an equal number of black and white people now, suddenly we're diverse. That moment that you talked about with the couple, when they asked Noni to take their picture, to me, and this is probably, I'm going to ask probably, this is my stereotype brain part that I wish wasn't there, but it is. This is my stereotyping. They looked like Mexicans in the market. They looked like they, for lack of a better term, belonged there. And I like the little twist of that scene where what we expect of them, that they're going to, you know, take this picture of Noni, turns into them embracing and making fun of one of the stereotypes that's on Mexican people because he poses with the big sombrero and is smiling with his loved one. I love that that moment turns that expectation around in different ways. Of course, there's the part with Noni but also just with the couple themselves. And I gotta wonder, with all these talks that we've had this month, and previously, and really, you know, the whole mission statement of our podcast about that importance of diversity, that's a story told very quickly. They are people that are living their own lives, and my expectations of them in this setting were born of some kind of stereotype. It's something that Watching this, I have to be, guess, policing myself on, or kind of that whole who watches the Watchmen thing. No matter how hard I try to embrace diversity and to understand these things, there's still that part of my brain that stereotypes, no matter how knowledgeable it is, there are these lives beyond the black and white spectrum that we've got here that could be flushed out even in tiny moments by thinking about the diversity from their perspective. Half the battle is recognize these things happen. As we were talking, I think, last week with video and people not wanting to be deemed a, a racist and will do anything to avoid that labeling while still having these thoughts. It's like, no, just sometimes acknowledging you thought that says things like, you know, I had the same thing when I was watching it as well, right? It's like, oh, of course that's who you would pick. But then the way how it's done, you realize, no, these people are, they're not locals there. You know, they're, they're probably yeah. tourists as well, right? And it's good that you have that little moment of recognition. I think too often people try to suppress that recognition or naturally assume, oh, well, I can't think that because it's wrong. It's like, no, we all have biases. We all have prejudice within us, whether we like to admit it or not. But it's just being able to acknowledge it, realize that, oh, this is why I thought I need to be more mindful of that moving forward. I think that's half the battle, but people don't want to even have those type of discussions, even on that basis level. Like, they just don't want to touch it, right? They assume if we ignore it, we don't say anything, it will disappear, and that's it doesn't work that way. No, we'll just leave people to wallow in their depression as they <laughs> struggle to be seen. So, I adore this movie. I, I'm glad that it was one that we came to a really early consensus on, and also to talk about it in relation to Black History Month and even the broader implications for diversity beyond the black-white spectrum. But, you know, considering how vilified pop is, all we really have to do now is look at the mass confusion and white hysteria that's erupted after Beyonce dropped the Formation video and is embracing her beautiful pregnant body. To see that movies like this, they're great. They are cultural milestones that we are still dealing with. And everything that happens in Beyond the Lights, it's relevant. It's 
something that I hope everyone who hasn't watched this watches, and if you have watched it, sound off at us, because this is just one of my favorite movies, period, especially after this second watch through. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, and in a weird sense of synergy in terms of relevance, I don't know if you've seen Machine Gun Kelly's, I guess, latest song that's been blowing up the charts, but he now has, after, because when this film was made, he was still pretty much a underground indie rapper, and now he has a mainstream hit called Bad Things, I think with uh, Camille Cabello. I might have that name wrong. I'll have to look that up. But it's one of those rap songs that has mainstream appeal. And the whole video is about him and this girl in a bad relationship. And of course, the female singer Camille is, is almost playing like the noni role, but not as scantily clad, but you know, that whole playing as if they are lovers on screen and in a bad relationship that keep going back and forth. And I was like, wow, it's, it's funny how art imitates life, imitates <laughs> art. <laughs> I guess to bring back to the discussion we just had, it's complicated, folks. <laughs> Great discussion, as always, Courtney. As far as you, the listeners, if you would like to contact us, you can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor our Gmail account at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. Of course, you're also free to leave us a comment on SoundCloud at the Modern Superior website or shoot us a message in any fashion. Courtney, how about yourself? You can reach me on Twitter at SmallMind. You can reach us on Facebook at Changing Reels. Before we close off, I remember last week I had said that I was going to give a shout out to a few of the people around the globe that had been listening to us the last couple episodes. The list has actually grown, partly because of the Red Turtle episode. So I'm just going to do a random five and maybe save the rest for another time. But the folks in Poland and Portugal, Cyprus, Brazil, and let's throw out Ireland, thank you for listening. If you're in any of those places or any of the places that I haven't listed yet, give us a shout. Go on iTunes, rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and if you have short films or feature film suggestions from your country, maybe a filmmaker you know, shoot us the suggestion. We'll definitely take a look for that. I think it'll close us out for the day. So, for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.